0: The following is a message from Reverend Ken Melden of Wellsprings Congregation. For me, rolling up my sleeves and going to work is not a metaphor. It is a way that I keep myself present while preaching. You see, I was uh, trained in preaching about how to communicate, about how to think, about how to get my message across, but I was not trained as a preacher to treat preaching as an embodied act. So often we split mind versus body, spirit versus matter, and these things really cost us and they cost an awful lot of pain to a lot of folks. And so I roll up my sleeves when I come up here because it's a basic mindfulness practice for me. I feel the air on my skin, rather cold today, including my hands, really cold. This is what happens when you step outside before you preach. And so it brings me back here into this moment. That's why I roll up my sleeves. This past week, Reverend Lee and I had an opportunity where we were invited to present to a number of leaders from the Jewish denomination called conservative Judaism. If you're familiar with Judaism, you might know that conservative doesn't really denote like a, a political philosophy of th- those sorts of Jewish people, but it's kind of the, the midspace between reform Judaism, which is the kind of Judaism that I grew up in. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in just a moment. And on the other side, the Orthodox tradition, which comes in a whole bunch of different flavors as well, too. But this is not a history of the denominations of Judaism today. So just know that uh, conservative Judaism is kind of in the middle, kind of uh, interpreting tradition in important ways and in meaningful ways and also wanting to make that tradition meaningful and present in their folks lives and so that as backdrop will let you know why this past monday when lee and i were giving this presentation i actually had my sleeves pulled down she noticed this she talked about it afterward i said well yeah that was intentional because for some conservative jews the way their interpretation of the tradition goes is that um these are not kosher (laughs) Tattoos are actually forbidden within more strict interpretations of Judaism. To mark the body in a permanent way is not okay. Now, the other thing, the other reason that I also did not reveal these tattoos is that given the uh, age of some of the people in the room, I thought that maybe some of them might be the children of Holocaust survivors. And aware that one of the ways that the bodies of those who survived the Holocaust and those who perished, one of the ways that their bodies were involuntarily marked by the experience was number tattoos. So I figured, you know what? Modesty is probably the best policy during that presentation. And there was one more reason as well why I covered over my tattoos. Some of you know that uh, these tattoos mean the same thing. This is meta. In uh, the script of Pali, the language of most of the original Buddhist scriptures, the sutras. And it means loving kindness. And this over here means loving kindness. Hebrew, chesed. Denoting, speaking of God's limitless eternal love for all of creation. Two traditions saying the same thing. One of the things I didn't want the after conversation after the presentation conversation to be about, was that I grew up Jewish, and obviously I no longer was. (laughs) That I was speaking as someone who helped to create a new Unitarian Universalist congregation. The truth is that my history with the denomination and the religious tradition in which I grew up is a complex one. I'm going to share a little bit of that with you. One of the ironies is that I came to recognize and learn so much more about the spiritual depth and beauty of the Jewish Jewish tradition after I left it, rather than when I grew up during it. See, I grew up in a form of Reformed Judaism, which Jewish cultural identity was really important, but I didn't get much of a sense of Jewish spiritual identity, which is actually what my own heart really wanted. There was one aspect, though of my Reform Jewish upbringing that really did stay with me. And for the purposes of this message here today, I will merely refer to him as my rabbi. My rabbi was the rabbi who bar mitzvahed me, that rite of passage for Jewish 13-year-olds. My rabbi was the clergy person who bought mitzvahed my sister. My rabbi gave me the first introduction to a person of faith that I could relate to. My rabbi had a profound sense of, hmm, what do we say in Yiddish, menschiness. He was a real mensch. He was very heartful. He had an active, engaged, searing kind of intellect. He could see through things. And at the same time, he had a really, really big heart. And he showed us that heart. I mean, well, he showed us that heart on the two times a year when my family would actually go to synagogue for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which were only 10 days away from each other. So we didn't go to the synagogue that much. But when we did, I always remembered my rabbi giving a message, giving a sermon, giving a talk that was really important to me. It helped make sense of the way I experienced the world in a deeper way. Now, my rabbi also offered me one other gift, and it was a gift I'm sure he never would have wanted to offer anyone, which is that. He showed us what it was like to grieve in public when his first wife died in, like, her young 40s, younger than I am now. I think she was 43 or 44 and died of cancer. And what I remember that time is not anything he said, but his presence, openness about his own grief and his own heartbreak, and also his ability to still do his job in a meaningful way and to be there for the members of the synagogue. So flash forward a bunch of years later. I don't really, really knew my rabbi, uh, as an active part of that synagogue, semi active part of the synagogue, until I was about 15. And then as a 22 year old, I found myself at divinity school in New Haven, Connecticut, and in the town north of New Haven, it's called Hamden. My rabbi was serving a new synagogue. And so in the fall of 1992, I got a chance to resume that relationship now as an adult. And it was really, really cool for me because we would go to lunch and we would talk theology. And I remember once I went to a a Shabbat service, a Friday night service, and he had me like give part of the prayer as well, too. And so it was cool to kind of reintegrate this part of my past and to extend it and deepen it with my rabbi. Now, some of you might know in that fall of 1992, something really unexpected and terrible happened in the life of my family when the bottom dropped out when my mom died at the age of 47, unexpectedly, without warning and unnecessarily. And so my rabbi, even though he was serving a synagogue hundreds of miles away, came back to the synagogue in Allentown, Pennsylvania that we were technically still members of, but it was the place where we had my mom's funeral, and he gave the eulogy. He gave her eulogy to help remember who my mom was for the hundreds and hundreds of heartbroken people who I showed up. I don't really remember exactly what he said, but I remember his presence and I remember it was healing. And I remember that he read a letter that he had kept for years that my mother wrote him on the occasion of my bar mitzvah expressing her gratitude to him for all that he meant to our family. That's a right on pastoral move right there. And so the relationship with my rabbi deepened in 1992 and 1993. And the thing was that I also recognized there was a whole other kind of realization coming up within me. That for the first time as I was drawing strength from spiritual community, that the spiritual community and the spiritual tradition I was called to wasn't going to be Judaism In the the summer of 1993, I had my Unitarian call to ministry, this call to Unitarian Universalist ministry. I call it my Unitarian Universalist baptism. It wasn't a full immersion. I was in the shower. The water hit me and rolled off. But I had this sense. I had this profound sense that was true, that I've never really doubted since, although the shape of my ministry has changed and is changing, that I would become a UU minister. And so that fall of 1993, where I turned back to school and started to resume those uh, lunches with my rabbi, I could feel there's something floating below the surface that I really needed to tell him. And so I decided I would I would rip that bandage off all at once. And I decided, foolhardy, foolish, uh, 23-year-old that I was, that I would tell my grandmother, my only living grandmother, my grandmother whose daughter had died, my mom, the year before, and I would tell my rabbi both on the same day that I was leaving Judaism. My grandmother didn't handle it well initially. She kind of semi-ran from the room crying Not what I intended to do to break her heart. Although she came around. She came to my ordination five years later. She embraced my religious identity, my new spiritual identity. Now at that lunch with my rabbi that day in November of 1993, after I told him this news that I was so freaking nervous about, he kind of sat back for a moment. And he stroked his very fitting rabbinical beard not this perma scruff crap i have stroked his rabbinical beard and he said well kenny only person allowed to call me kenny my entire life none of you are so let's get clear on that well kenny the tragedy for you would be not to quest hmm you could tell he didn't love the decision I was making, but he honored it. The tragedy for you would be not to quest. thought, okay, this has gone pretty well, about as well as I could have hoped. About a week or so later after that lunch, I called my rabbi. And He had a weird sound in his voice. Hurried, rushed, I'll get back to you. He didn't. A couple of weeks after that, I called him again left a message at his office for him. He didn't get back to me. Flash forward several years later, and I am returning to New Haven to do my ministerial internship at the Unitarian Society of New Haven, which is literally right next door to where my rabbi's synagogue is. Like it is so right next door. That on the high holy days, the overflow parking takes over the entire parking lot of the Unitarian Society of New Haven. And I'm figuring maybe we might run into each other. And so I write him the best, most truthful, most heartful, most honest, most gracious letter I can. I'm returning to New Haven. I'm doing my ministerial internship right next door. Perhaps we might get together for coffee or lunch. I'll buy this time. I want to express my gratitude to you for all that you've meant to me and all that you have meant to my family no answer. Flash forward to December 1st, 1997. World AIDS Day. And I am the ministerial intern representing the Unitarian Society of New Haven at a downtown church on the green, if you've ever been in New Haven. With interfaith clergy of all different varieties and traditions. And I see My rabbi, across the way, doesn't hold my gaze, and then we find ourselves a little later on that afternoon, being introduced to each other by a Catholic priest who knows both of us. (laughs) By the way, this is Ken, minister of insurance. By the way, this is Rabbi X. And my rabbi shakes my hand and conveys no knowledge that he had bar mitzvahed me and bat mitzvahed my sister and given the eulogy at my mother's funeral and turned on his heel and walked away. It still hurts to bring it up a little bit, truth be told. A heart that was once open and deep and generous and compassionate to me it closed. Pretty clearly, it had closed. And it hurt. It hurt. I think we all know this experience in one form or another. It may not have been a clergy person who was dear to you. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was a partner. Maybe it was someone who you built a business with. Maybe it was someone, whoever it was to you. Maybe it's a child, a parent. Those moments in life when the disappointments and the heartbreaks are so profound because the trust and the love was so constitutive of our own lives. The disappointments at these kinds of moments where there was real trust, it's taken away and it hurts and our hearts break. Our Quaker friends have a beautiful way of putting this. I say beautiful not because what they're referring to is positive, but merely because it's a part of our lives and it's powerful. Our Quaker friends call this when way closes down. When the relationships that we had placed so much trust and faith and stock and love and our hearts into, when there's nothing more to say or nothing more to do, And we just recognize there is an open wound there where once there had been love. To be able to exist in these places meaningfully when way closes down, this is powerful work. This is a powerful source of learning to be alive. And I can see from a number of your faces right now that it is tough work. I know it has been tough work for me. On the grand scale, in terms of our country right now, even beyond the politics of the moment, beyond socially what's going on, beyond policy what's going on, if I have any hope for the soul of our country and the heart of our country, it is this. And by the way, when I say hope, I'm not feeling particularly hopeful. I think this is part of the deepest work that needs to be done right now in the life of this moment is to learn all of us to inhabit more generously, more openly, the spaces within us and between us when way closes down. When we experience and we know what it is to be deeply disappointed because life didn't turn out as we thought it was going to turn out. There's a a iconoclastic conservative writer named uh, Andrew Sullivan. For years, I read his blog, like every single day between like 1998 and 2014 when he closed it down because finally, what do you know, the the, the physical toll of blogging 12 to 14 hours a day for seven days a week for years, for decades, finally took too much of a toll and he retired from blogging. Now, given the interesting, interesting moment that we are in politically and socially, Andrew Sullivan decided not to return to daily blogging, but to posting a long form essay New York Magazine, every single Friday. A couple weeks ago, he talked about his experience of going back to the small town in England that he grew up in. He was Irish Catholic, grew up in England. He was a young gay man who was not ready to come out yet. I mean, this is a place he left intentionally to come to America and start a new life. And still, going back there to that town, recognizing that in his heart, as much as he's traveled the world, he's very much a homebody. And how much that small town in England had become a forgotten place. A dot on the map that not many people went to anymore and was not thriving like it had been when he grew up there in the 60s and the 70s. What Andrew Sullivan related this to is something many of us have read about in the news over these last few months. You know, the industrial towns, the post-industrial towns in states like Indiana and Michigan and Ohio. And understanding these are places where the unemployment is spiking in a form of life that once promised good middle class paying jobs to a lot of people is disappearing and is disappointing. There's an awful lot of disappointment, an awful lot of addiction, and an awful lot of pain. And Andrew Sullivan very beautifully says, there is grieving in those places, and it's grieving that needs to happen. And it's grieving that should be honored. I like Andrew Sullivan a lot, and I think he said that part really well, but there's something he didn't say. We can grieve poorly, and we can grieve well. If we grieve poorly, when our hearts break, when we're disappointed, we create enemies, we create others, we create people who are different from us, who we think are to blame for our problems. And, of course, right there we have the seed of racism, of nationalism, of jingoism, of all the things that are so troubling in this society right now. Or we can take our pain and our own disappointment and recognize how that pain and disappointment might connect us with the other forgotten places. With the other places in this culture that are not getting time and attention and haven't, not just recently, last decade, but haven't for generations. It's on the large scale, but on the small scale. When you're disappointed, when I'm disappointed, when we're disappointed, do we go right to that place of kind of making enemies? Of, you know, even if we're never going to execute it, we're going to, you know, play out those revenge scenarios? Oh, if only they would know. And if only they could see someday. Do we make those categorical judgments about they're all that kind of person? Or in grieving well do we allow some space for our pain to simply be pain do we allow some space for our sadness to simply be sadness i know in the 11 and a half years or so since i've been part of wellsprings i've gone back to these words regularly they're from our beliefs and values we talk about it as living with integrity and that we live with integrity By listening, by listening in a particular way, with humility and vulnerability, especially in those brokenhearted moments. Because the truth is, integrity is not some highfalutin moral virtue. Integrity is just the opposite of fragmentary. And I know when my own heart breaks, and I am deeply disappointed, and I know from other people's lives as well too, That when our hearts break, and we are most deeply disappointed, our lives and our hearts are pretty jagged places. And those jagged parts of ourselves can become, to put it this way, kind of stabby. (laughs) Can become harsh and painful. And we can grow embittered around those jagged places. Or we can practice that close, careful, compassionate listening to our own pain and the pains of others allowing the vulnerability and the humility to soften us. At those moments, I remember, and I've said this to more people in uh, early sobriety over the last decade or so in my own life than I can remember, sometimes at those moments, the best wins are simply not losing anymore, not causing any more damage or any more harm. This is why it is so important to inhabit our disappointments and our heartbreak as fully as we can because it matters to the world between us. So we're not creating more pain where there is already pain within us and around us. If we listen, if we truly listen deeply to those wounded spaces within ourselves, then even our disappointments and even our losses can become our strengths. And not strengths in the sense of I'm glad that it happened. It's perverse to actually be grateful for heartbreak and to think it's something good. But still, if we're even moderately alive in this life, we all know what heartbreak is. And we recognize that if we listen to our heartbreak, then we grow big, generous hearts filled with compassion and engage fully those spaces between us. And we recognize this compassion ultimately heals us by recognizing we're not alone. If we can adapt and if we can grow at those disappointing, heartbroken places. This is uh, one of my favorite stories in the Buddhist tradition. I have many of them. One of my favorite stories is, if you recognize the Buddha story, is a lot like a lot of other miracle-giving stories, a lot of like a lot of other gospels. Like Jesus healed people, the Buddha healed people, and so these mythic stories grew up around the Buddha. And this young parent, this young mother, approached the Buddha one day because she had suffered the most grievous loss that any parent. And maybe we can say any person can suffer. She had lost her beloved child and asked the Buddha, Would you would you would you bring him back? The Buddha didn't say no, but the Buddha instead said this I will grant your wish if you can do something for me. I need you to go around to all the towns and all the villages in our region. And if you can bring me one grain of rice from one household that has never suffered heartbreak or loss within a year, I will grant your wish. Buddha kind of set that one up. Because in that year, of course, with the young mother whose heart is so broken, so obviously, what she recognizes is that there is no household untouched by loss. Of course, again, I want to be clear about this. It's not good that this happened so she could learn this wisdom. It's that these things happen to all of us. And this is where our growth, our maturity, our healing comes about. To grow generous hearts, so generous listeners to ourselves and others when we are heartbroken. This is the work of lifetime and of lifetimes. And so yeah, now almost twenty five years later, a quarter century later, I go back in my mind to my rabbi. It's interesting when I preach this at the nine thirty service. Someone said, and not in a way like judging me or judging themselves, but they said, I've become so conditioned by happy ending stories that I was waiting for that moment when he was going to come back to you and apologize. Folks, it hasn't happened. But I've changed. Almost a quarter century later, I recognize now that my rabbi was probably really disappointed and really hurt by my choice. He had invested a lot of time and a lot of energy in me and had cared for my family in beautiful ways. And he was probably really hurt when I made this decision to leave Judaism. I wish maybe he would have told me about that. But he's like all the rest of us. Sometimes when we're disappointed. We're not our best or most mature selves. And we just kind of cover up in our pain and play defense. He was disappointed just like I was disappointed, I imagine. Makes me remember the words of one of my favorite tattooed pastors, Nadia Bulls Weber. She has more tattoos than me. I think she even has more tattoos than Reverend Lee, although Reverend Lee is gaining on her. Nadia Bowles Weber, who says to all new members in her congregation. I love, by the way, that this comes a week after our last new member Sunday. We all can hear this. I can stand to hear it again that she says at some point I will disappoint you. (laughs) She says at some point this congregation will disappoint you. It is inevitable. And she said you can take that disappointment and you can leave because you've come to understand that. Oh, my God, these people are imperfect. And I was looking for perfect people. (laughs) or you can stay, and you can build the kind of honest relationship with this community of imperfect people in which we can grow together, grow love, grow grace, grow generosity, and recognizing that we're all imperfect. It's the same thing here, right? We all know this. You've been around for a while, and even it's your first Sunday, we're imperfect folks. Sorry to let the cat out of the bag. When we stick with each other with the fullness of our imperfections, and actually that's what heals us by embracing those imperfections, by bringing the fullness of who we are as people into this community and learning from those places to be kind and generous and loving. That's where the transformative work comes about, not by being flawless, because that will never happen. Reminds me that one of my favorite teachings on leadership is by a guy named Ron Heifetz who teaches at the... Harvard uh, Kennedy School of Government. And he said, leadership is uh, the art of disappointing people at a rate that they can withstand. (laughs) A rate they can tolerate. (laughs) Truth is, my friends, that I have surpassed and broken that rate more times than I would ever wish to recall. But recalling it keeps me honest. And honesty is the only way that my heart does not close. Because the truth here as well. In the nearly two decades I've been doing ministry, this is part of my story. My heart has been broken and disappointed as well in my ministry. Beware of any clergy person who tells you otherwise, because they are not telling you the truth. Because to lead is to listen. And to listen is to love. And to love is having our hearts broken. And if we're mature and we grow, And we recognize that's the greatest source of our strength of how we lead in the first place. And those are the kind of people who we need to be leaders in our world right now in spiritual communities and beyond spiritual communities. It's why in the first place that I have written permanently loving kindness on my arms to remind me and perhaps if it's helpful from you on here from here on out when you see me to remind you as well too. (laughs) that when we are heartbroken and when we are disappointed there is an invitation the invitation the same invitation as the poet David White put it to become generous citizens of loss because we're all going to lose it's inevitable sorry I'm still making my peace with that one and we're all going to know heartbreak and we're all going to know disappointment and that the great opportunity of being here together is that we get to work on that and be honest about it and we get to heal. That's the most important work that we do here in spiritual community. Anything else is just window dressing. (laughs) If we're doing that work here together then yes we are living our lives chargeful with the charge of the soul and that's why we are here. Amen, my friends. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? For the heartbroken spaces that are still the divine spaces, not because some force compelled our hearts to break because that's the way we learn things or we can only learn through pain because simply because... The fullness of this life means recognizing all of this life, both within ourselves and around ourselves, between ourselves in this world. That heartbreak and disappointment is here and there is no getting away from it. There is only getting into it. Allowing ourselves to be fully embraced by a love so profound and so special that it holds us especially when we need it most. We accept that invitation By recognizing the fullness of our lives. Right here, right now, today. Maybe there is heartbreak. Maybe there is disappointment. Maybe there is hardening of the heart. Maybe there is defending of the heart. And so I'd ask us. I'd even pray for it. That the heart would be soft and grow strong in that softness. And to recognize once again. That pain is not the final word on our lives. That the great compassion. The great love. The great belonging. This is us and always is us. And in turning toward the jagged places, we are put back together. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.